Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. In one of his works, Robert Louis Stevenson has a character say, I have a grand memory for forgetting. It reminds me of me. Uh, it starts actually at an early age. Uh, parents have to constantly remember uh, or teach their children to remember, I should say. Hey, you know, pick up your toys, uh, clean up your room, brush your teeth. And it doesn't stop when you get to be an adult. Uh, at the age I am, I am still being reminded. As a matter of fact, I think it gets worse when you get older, not better. Uh, I sometimes say to my wife, I don't know what I would do without you. I, there would be huge holes in my life if it weren't for her constantly reminding me to do things. Well, apparently the Lord is of the same opinion that we need to constantly be reminded. There are just numerous passages in the Bible where he says something to that effect. As a matter of fact, of the 66 books in the Bible, one whole book is written just with the theme of reminding people of what they already know. Now, I have taken that book and gone through it paragraph by paragraph. It's the little book of Second Peter. What I would like to do today is go through the whole book at one time. Now, don't get too nervous. It only has three chapters. At a chapter an hour, we could only be here for three hours, but it's going to not take quite that long. Uh, I just want to have you to turn to the book and let's look at it and get the big picture, the overview of the book. Now, that's what we normally do with a book, right? Uh, when you peel a book off the shelf, the first thing you want to know is what's the subject of that book. And then you look at the book, uh, and in most cases, you look at the book as a whole. You wouldn't read a novel and just read a chapter. You wouldn't just read a paragraph. You wouldn't just read a sentence. You would take the book as a whole. Unfortunately, the Bible has been chopped up into chapters and verses. It wasn't written that way. Those were added later. And so we treat the Bible like we don't treat any other book. We will take one verse or one sentence out of it. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. It's just that we sometimes don't understand those sentences and verses because we don't understand the big picture. It is very important that you understand the Bible in context. As a matter of fact, yesterday, uh, Patricia and I went to a memorial service. 
And at the reception afterward, we were sitting at a table with some just delightful people. And one lady, who was Kathleen's longtime friend, uh, was uh, telling me that she grew up in a cult. And I asked, well, how did you happen to get out of that? And this is what she told me. She said, I started reading the Bible. Now, that particular cult has its own translation, and they give you the inter their interpretation of everything. But she said, I set aside their writings and just read the Bible in context. And my little old heart went pitter-patter. And I turned to my wife and I said, put that on my tombstone. Read the Bible in context. Preach the Bible in context. It makes all the difference in the world. So uh, what I'm doing today is explaining all of Second Peter, but I also want to just underscore the fact that that's the way you ought to treat the Bible in the other 65 books. All right, have you found First Peter, I mean Second Peter chapter 1? You got it? Well, let me just show you that Peter is talking about forgetting. He's talking about reminding you because we forget. So look at chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Look at verse 13. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, meaning his body, to stir you up by reminding you. Look at verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I leave this life. Now turn over to chapter 3. Verse 1, beloved, I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Wow, in that verse he said he was doing the same thing in the first little book he wrote we call First Peter. Look at verse 2, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Uh, drop down to verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. So throughout the book, he keeps saying, I'm writing this to you to remind you. Now, what is it he wants to remind us of? I'll go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 4. By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he mentions a promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. These scoffers are saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He mentions promises at the beginning of the book and toward the end of the book, and he mentions a lot about that promise throughout the book. Now, what promise is he talking about? Well, it becomes very clear 
that he's talking about the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it's very clear in chapter 3, verse 4, because the scoffers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's the subject of the book of 2 Peter. It is a reminder of the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The subject of 2 Peter is it is a reminder of the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, this book develops that theme. That's what any good book does. It has a theme, and the book unfolds, develops that theme. That's what 2 Peter and every other book in the Bible does. Now, how does he do that? Well, in the first place, I should say that this book is in the form of a letter. An ancient letter, as you've heard me say before, as we've looked at various letters in the New Testament, had a format. And Peter follows that format to a degree. He doesn't follow it explicitly. The format was simply a salutation, a thanksgiving, a prayer, the body of the book, and at the end, personal greetings and a benediction. Well, Peter starts out following that format. He gives a salutation, and in a salutation, they identified the author of the letter, the recipients of the letter, and a greeting. He does that, but there's no thanksgiving in this letter, and there's no prayer in this letter. So he doesn't follow the format that he starts out with uh, exactly in, until it, its fullest extent. So let me suggest that after the salutation, there's a bit of a, uh, an introduction, we could call it. Maybe a little more formal word might be a prologue. Begins in chapter 1, verse 3, and goes down through verse 11. Then there is the body of the book itself. And the body of the book technically begins in chapter 1, verse 12, and goes all the way through the book to chapter 3, verse 13. And the last verses, 14 to 18 in chapter 3, are something of a conclusion of the whole book. So, um, what I want to deal with primarily is the body of the book. But before I do, let me just mention something about the salutation. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bond slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I love that. Apostle is somebody who has authority. They are sent with authority. Apostle in the New Testament is very similar to an ambassador in our day. Somebody representing the president or the country, but with authority. And yet he says, I'm a servant. And we need to have both of those things in mind. If you have any kind of authority, and you do, as a parent, as a, an employer, a boss, uh, you need to remember that you're still a servant. And Peter starts out by saying, I'm an apostle, but foremost, before that, I'm a servant. Great reminder, Peter. Thank you. 
Then he says, to those who have obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the salutation identifies the author, that's Peter. It identifies the recipients, and in this case, he says it's to all those who have obtained a precious faith with us, meaning the apostles. So we have the same faith as the apostles. Now you've heard me say this hundreds of times, but after all, this is a book to remind us. So I would be in line with the book if I reminded you. What is the faith that we have? Well, among other things, and primarily, it is the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died, that he arose, and that getting to heaven, or salvation as we like to call it, is by trusting in Jesus who died and arose from the dead. So if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you have it the right, according to this book, to say that you have eternal life and will never perish. It's secure. Now, that's the same faith that the apostles had. So he says it's precious, and we have, uh, he's addressing this to those who have the same faith he does. Mainly, faith in Jesus Christ to be righteous before God. Then he gives a little bit of a greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So there is the greeting. I really like this greeting. If you've trusted Christ, the latter part of verse 1, you have received grace. If you have trusted Christ, latter part of verse 1, you've received peace. Or to use it in Paul's expression, therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. But look at what Peter says. You have grace? Oh yeah. You have peace? Absolutely. What I want for you is that that be multiplied. I want you to be abundantly blessed with the grace of God and the peace that only comes from a right relationship with the Lord. So that's the salutation. Peter, an apostle, a slave of God. To those who have, well, like faith as we do, and what I wish for you is that you would have grace and peace. Now, the body of the letter starts in verse uh, 12. And so between verses 3 or 12, there is an introduction and this is where he just sort of introduces the idea that I'm giving you a promise, I'm reminding you, I should say, of a promise, that the promise being that the Lord is coming back, and that you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, I'm going to skip over that because I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But what I want to do is just sort of develop the body of the book. Now, I want you to know that Peter was a Baptist preacher. And the way I know that is the body of his book has three points. And every good Baptist preacher has three points, right? Well, Peter has three points. So everything I've said so far is sort of an introduction. Now I'm going to give you the three main points. You ready? Point one. 
Point one is that the promise that we've been given is sure. It's confirmed. It's absolutely true. So the point of the book is this promise of the second coming of Christ, this promise of prophecy that Christ is coming back. And Peter is saying in this passage, that is absolutely certain. It is sure. He says to you, I know that for a fact. Now, that part of the book starts at verse 12 in chapter 1 and goes through the first chapter. In that section, he starts out saying, I want to remind you, I pointed out verse 12 a while ago, for this reason I will not neglect to remind you. Verse 13, yes, it is right as long as I'm in this body to remind you. Verse 15, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder. Even after I depart, I'm writing this letter so you will be reminded after I depart. Now, what is it he's trying to remind us of? Well, look at verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, look, what I'm talking to you about is the coming of the Lord. Got it? It wasn't a fable. It wasn't a myth. I didn't make this up. Jesus is coming back. Hear me and hear me well. As certain as Jesus came the first time, Jesus is coming back. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. Jesus is coming back. Wow, you sure sound convinced. You sure sound emphatic about that. How can you be so sure? How can you be so emphatic? Well, for me to answer that question is one thing. For Peter to answer that question is another. How would you like to know why Peter was so convinced of that? How would you like to know why I'm so convinced of that? You're supposed to say yes. That gives me an excuse to tell you. I'm convinced of it because I believe the book is the Word of God. That's why. Uh, say, well, how can you be so convinced of that? I'll tell you. I, I didn't mean to go into this, but now that you ask. Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament was written at least 400 years before Christ got here, right? Then Christ came. Well, let me just tell you we know for certain, we can prove that the scripture in the Old Testament was written at least 400 years before Christ came because of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things like that. All right? Let me tell you what the Old Testament says. A Messiah is coming. He's going to be from Abraham. He's going to be Jewish. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. That's a tribe within Judaism. He's going to be from the family of David. We're narrowing this thing down. He's, uh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Wow. Hundreds of years before Christ came. We know that the Messiah is coming. He's going to be a Jew from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. That he's going to die. That's Isaiah 53. 
He's going to be raised from the deck, uh, dead. That's Psalm 16. Wow. There is nothing like that in the world. There is no book. There is no person that's ever given that kind of a prophecy and it come true. Now there have been some people that have made some prophecies. They're usually very vague. Nothing that specific exists in any philosophy book, any history book, any religious book on this planet. That, if nothing else, that has convinced me this is the word of God. Now, if the word said that Jesus is coming and it was that specific and he came and fulfilled every one of those and dozens of other prophecies, literally, then when it says he's coming back, I'm a believer. Okay, simply because the book tells me so and it's proven to be a word from God. That isn't what Peter said. Peter had another reason for believing it. Would you like to know what Peter said, convinced him the Lord was coming back? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 16. I didn't follow some cunningly devised fable when we, the apostles, made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What? Verse 17. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice when we, which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mountain. Now what he's talking about is during the lifetime of Christ, Peter, James, and John were invited to go up to the top of a mountain and Jesus transformed himself so they saw the transformed Christ. Now, he said, I saw him transformed. So when he says he's coming back, I'm a believer. I saw it. I'm an eyewitness. Look at the next verse. Verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. So he starts out saying in verse 16, telling you about the second coming of Christ was not a fable. Verse 19, it was confirmed. How so, Peter? It was confirmed because we saw him transfigured on the top of the mountain called the mountain of transfiguration. So the first point Peter's making is the prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ is sure. It's confirmed. It's a fact. Now, the point he's making is you can, you can rely on that. You can take that to the bank. Matter of fact, you can build your life on that. You just count on that. Uh, let me give it to you another way. You're going to die. I am going to die. Is that true? Amen. One way or another, we're departing this life, right? You can count on that. You can take it to the bank. You can be just as certain of the second coming of Jesus Christ as you can that you and I are going to be out of here someday. Got it? So build your life on it. 
Thomas Nelson Publishing Company launched an advertising campaign a couple of years ago for the New King James Version of the Bible that they published. And their slogan was, you can build your life on it. I love it. Uh, matter of fact, they, they, uh, they in, in part of the advertising is they uh, created little styrofoam bricks. And the campaign was, you can build your life on this, and the idea was these bricks built on the Bible. I liked it, so I was back there to do something for them, and uh, I got some bricks, uh, little styrofoam bricks, and um, a matter of fact, used that in a sermon, and I started throwing bricks at people. <laughs> and I, were you here when I did that? Some of you remember that? Yeah, you remember that? I threw bricks at people. Always wanted to do that. Uh, Took them and said, hey, you can build your life on it and threw a brick at them. You can build your life on this and threw a brick at them. You can build your life on this book and on the promise that Jesus is coming back. Build your life on it. You can count on that. That's going to happen. Now there's a problem. Turn to chapter 2. Peter has a second point. And his second point is, but there are some false teachers out there. Now, what I just told you, Peter would consider coming from a true teacher. But he warns there are false teachers. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But there were, as there were, also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Interesting verse, by the way. There were prophets in the Old Testament. There were prophets in the New Testament. And Peter speaks like all of that is past. He's writing toward the end of the New Testament era. And he says, but there were false prophets. And there will be false, what? Teachers. Teachers. So one of the interesting things about that verse is there are no more prophets. Now we just got false teachers. Interesting. But that's not his point. His point is they're going to be false teachers. And what he says about them is um, they're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now let me tell you, how do you get a false teacher? Where do you find false teachers? When I was going through this book, I came to this paragraph, and that day there was a visitor who was in school, and he said to somebody who attends this church regularly, in the middle of my sermon, I know where false teachers are in school. You know what? There's some wisdom to that. But that isn't what Peter's talking about. You know what Peter's talking about? When he says they come in secret, they come in secretly where? In the church. Let me tell you where you find a false teacher. In the pulpit. Find them in church. Wow. You mean... They, they all claim they're teaching the Bible. I know. 
Even Satan quoted the Bible, quoted the Word of God, right? To deceive Eve. Just because somebody has a Bible in their hand doesn't mean they're teaching what it says. Well, how do you know? I told you that a minute ago. Did you forget already? You got to read the Bible in. Woo, you remembered? Right. The difference is context. You got to read the Bible in context. So, Peter says, look out. There are going to be false teachers coming. They're going to be in church. Now, they're going to secretly come in. But they're false teachers. They're going to even go so far as to deny the Lord who bought them. Now, I, I assume you understand that there are people in Protestant churches who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's a false teacher. There are preachers in Protestant churches who deny the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a false teacher. Am I making myself clear? Got it? They secretly come in. And that's only the beginning. Now, Peter says they're going to deny the Lord who bought them. Jesus died for them and they're still going to deny it. Now, on those people, Peter says, look at verse 1. Bringing in destructive heresies, denying the Lord who bought them, and bringing on themselves swift destruction. Peter's point in the opening verses is they are coming, people are going to follow them, that's verse 2, and many will follow them. They're coming, people are going to follow them, but they are going to be judged. False teachers are going to be judged. As a matter of fact, he expands on that in the following verses and talks about the fact that they are going to be judged. God is going to judge all false teachers and ungodliness, and he expands on that. That's sort of rather straightforward and self-evident, so I'm going to skip down to verse 10, where he says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh... In the lust of uncleanness, despising authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they are afraid to speak, uh, not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, the, the reason I wrote, uh, read that verse is that beginning in about verse 3, he's basically, actually the beginning of verse 1, he's just saying they're, gonna, they're coming and they're going to be judged. But in verse 10, he gives them something of their characteristics. They despise authority. They are dominated by fleshly lust, and they're driven, as he goes on to explain, by covetousness. And they deliver nothing that is of any profit to other people. Now that's the little section he deals with in chapter 2, verses 10 to 17. At the end of the chapter, he's talking about false prophets, and he's saying at the end of the chapter, people are going to follow them. Now, he mentioned that earlier, but he's going to develop it more at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollution of the world through knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again 
entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse than their beginning. Now he clearly said that many will follow their destructive ways in verse 2. In verse 20, he's saying Christians could be sucked in by a false teacher. He says they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He mentioned that very phrase at the beginning of the book to describe true believers. And now he's saying true believers can follow false teachers. Wow. Why would a Christian follow a false teacher? Well, I think there are all kinds of answers to that. Uh, I won't pontificate, but I mean, there's just all kinds of answers. One is they had a friend who, you know, sucked them into it and all that kind of stuff. But let me tell you what Peter says. I find his, interest, uh, his answer very interesting. Look at verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. While they promise them liberty. Wow. I think the way, one of the ways false teachers suck people into their false destructive doctrine is they promise them liberty. Only they themselves are in bondage, he says. The other thing is this. Look at verse 18. For they speak great swelling words of emptiness. They elude through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Again, it's Christians who get sucked in because they listen to great swelling words of emptiness. May I give you the modern translation of that? They're full of hot air. Great swelling words of emptiness. Just imagine a balloon filled with helium. It's a great swelling balloon filled with hot air. They promised them liberty. They promised them freedom. And with great swelling words of hot air. And a friend once who went to hear a liberal preacher and came back and he said, you know what those guys say nothing beautifully. They have a way with words. Great swelling words. But they're empty words. They're met. They're fable. Peter says, I'm giving you the truth. Jesus is coming back. By the way, they promised them liberty. And obviously they used their liberty for sin. Excessive sin. The false teachers. Believers can get sucked into that. And he says, no, no. And I want to just add that liberty in the Bible is not to do as you please. Liberty in the Bible is to do what you ought to do. It's freedom from the law so that you can live by grace alone. It's not freedom that you can just go live as you please. All right, how are we doing? Got it so far? All right, point one was we have a promise of the second coming. Point number two was 
we have this presence of false teachers. Now I'll get to chapter 3. He said, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle to stir up your minds. Verse 2, be mindful. Verse 3, knowing that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. Ah, the third thing he wants to talk about are scoffers. They are like the false teachers. Both of them live according to the flesh. Uh, and both deny the promise of his coming, apparently. The scoffers mock it. And it's possible that the scoffers were some of the false teachers. But be that as it may, he's talking about false teachers. And now, scoffers. Now, what do they say? Well, look at verse 3. And scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, the false teachers might have taught things about liberty. The scoffers focus on the second coming and say they are denying his coming. Where is he? He promised he's coming, but everything's just the same like it's always been. I don't think he's coming. Now, Peter has an answer to that. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter says, look, don't mistake God's patience for lack of fulfilling a promise. He's just being patient, giving people time to change their mind and come to Christ. That's what's going on. But don't miss out. He will perform his promise. Amen. Jesus is coming back. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now you can get lulled to sleep, spiritually speaking, but just know the Lord is coming back and it's going to take a lot of people by surprise. He's going to come as a thief in the night. M.R. Dahan, a Bible teacher of years ago, said, Christ will come as a thief in the night. A thief comes at night when all is dark. A thief comes when people in houses are fast asleep. A thief comes and is gone before anyone knows he has been there. A thief takes only what has value and does not bother with the trash. That's how the Lord is coming back. He went on to say, Never has the world outlook been so dark as today. It was dark then. It's even darker now. And he goes on to describe some of the darkness. He says, today the great mass of Christendom is falling asleep in the vain hope of a better world by religious ethics and man's progress. And then he applied the thief being gone before anyone knows so that the, the Lord will come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And he concludes by saying that when Jesus comes as a thief, he will take only those who are, are her value 
and he will not bother with anybody else. Interesting. He wrote that. It's darker. It's darker now than ever before. In 1954. What would he say today? All right. There's a conclusion. Peter ends the epistle. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. And basically what he says here is, be diligent to be blameless. Count the delay of Christ as an opportunity for people to be saved. Then he says this, beware of being led astray. Oh, that's an important verse. Right at the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 17. Beloved, since you knew now the Lord is coming back, beware lest you fall from your steadfastness being led astray with the error of the wicked. And what he's talking about in this book is being led away by the error of the false teachers in chapter 2 and the scoffers in chapter 3. The idea of the Lord's not coming back. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And that's the end of the book. So, if I were going to put this book all together, I would say it's teaching us that believers need to be reminded of God's great promise that Jesus is coming back so that they will be diligent to grow in grace and godliness and remember that false teachers and scoffers and ungodly people will be judged because they are not teaching the truth. Got it? Got it. All right, here's what I'm telling you. The Lord's coming back. Amen? Amen. That ought to affect the way you live. And what it ought to affect is that you ought to be about the business of growing spiritually. So, let me go back to that little passage I skipped over in chapter 1. And look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is teaching in this book, the Lord is coming. Grow. Don't pay attention to false teachers and scoffers. Grow. So that you will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom when the Lord comes. You know what that means? If you're growing and serving the Lord, there are rewards over there. They say you can't take it with you. Well, you can't. The material things. But you can take... You can take it with you if you're serving the Lord, right? So this book tells you to grow. Now, how do you do that? Glad you asked. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to your knowledge self-control, to your self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. 
Wow. There's the list. The, the Spirit-ordained list for how to grow. Now, you've heard me go through that in a little detail, so I won't review all that. But I would like to mention one thing. Do you know who Dennis Prager is? Do you, do you know who, raise your hand. Do you know who Dennis Prager is? He is a radio speaker, and he's a, a Jew, uh, but has very favorable things to say about Christians. Um, he's on three hours a day, and I happened to be in the car this week when he was on. Every Friday, he has one hour dedicated to the subject of happiness. Uh, and he's been doing it for almost 20 years. Every week, he, with very few exceptions, he talks about how to be happy. So I happened to be in the car. Uh, I'm usually not when he's on, but I was this week, and I turned him on. And he was talking about happiness, and he said, apart from being grateful, what one characteristic do you have to have to be happy? Now, having listened to him for years, I um, thought I would uh, guess before he told us. And I said, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, you've got to be a servant. You've got to go do something outside yourself, you know. That's not what he said. <laughs> I was really surprised. He said, apart from being grateful, the second greatest characteristic you need to be happy is, would you like to guess? It's in that list. Self-control. Wow. And I thought, he's been reading Second Peter. <laughs> Probably not. But I think he has a point. I know this. If you want to go to be like Jesus Christ, you've got to have self-control. I've got a word on that <laughs> in the Bible. It's right here. This is the list that tells us how to grow. Now, listen to this. Look at chapter 1 and look at verse 8. If these things are yours, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Is he talking about Christians? They were forgiven, right? He says you cannot grow. What? Peter says you can be barren and unfruitful. There are preachers who teach that if you're unfruitful, you were never forgiven. They obviously never read their Bible with both eyes open or to say the same thing another way they didn't read it in context. They picked things out here and there. This verse says you can be barren even if you're forgiven. Translated, you will waste your life. This is the point. The Lord is coming back. You can enter the kingdom abundantly, greatly rewarded, or you can be barren and unfruitful and get zero for rewards in the kingdom of God. That's 2 Peter. You can all go to waste. You can waste it all on pleasure, on possessions, on position. You can waste it all. 
This is not the first time I've preached through 2 Peter. One of the other times, a number of years ago, I got preaching. And at the end of the book, I kept making the point, the future determines the present. Do you remember that? The future determines the present. I did it three Sundays in a row. I did it again when I preached it this time. The future determines the present. The future determines the present. And on the third Sunday, I think it was, I, we got done and went to the dining hall to eat lunch. And I was uh, eating some cookies. And a dear fella, I forgot who, poked my stomach and said, the present determines the future. I mean, the future <laughs> determines the present. And he rubbed my stomach. And I thought, you know what, that's dead right. It all went to waste. <laughs> and that's what I'm telling you. You can waste it all. It can all go to waste. All your days can be wasted because you live for yourself and not the Lord. Now you know a lot of the stuff, if not all of the stuff I've told you today. And that's why Peter says, you know all this, I'm just reminding you. Amen. And here it is. The Lord is coming back, and you can be barren, or you can have an abundant entrance into the kingdom, depending on whether or not you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So let me end by telling you, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. But you will, if you make your diligent to grow, then you will never stumble in this life and you will have an entrance that is abundant into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. Do you need to be reminded yes. to grow yes. and not waste your life? Amen. That's the message of Second Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little book. What powerful truths that are in it. And Lord, just like Peter said, we tend to forget all this. Go live for today or tomorrow, maybe next week. Forget to live for eternity and for you. So Father, way beyond anything I've said today, May the Spirit of God take this message, these words from your word, and indelibly impress it upon our minds and hearts so that it affects the way we think, the way we talk, and the way we walk. In Jesus' name, amen.